uh, about a, a record time in terms of uh, me getting up to preach at uh, 10.16. That's good. Um, that means I have a long time to speak this morning, right? You can open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Colossians chapter 4. And as you're opening there, I just want to tell you also at the end of the service, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. You can prepare your hearts to that. Our message will move in that direction towards the end of the uh, the service here this morning as well. Before I read my text, I want to uh, tell you that uh, normally it's our custom at Rock Valley Bible Church, the end of our, our services, to uh, conclude our worship services with a time of announcements. Oftentimes we bring somebody up here and they... They pull out the bulletin and they tell you of upcoming events and they read through the different service opportunities that you have and different things that are going to be taking place, different announcements maybe that need to, need to happen. And uh, this morning as we look at our text here in uh, Colossians chapter 4, they read almost like church announcements closing a service. And um, that is really what I've titled my sermon this morning, Closing Announcements. Now, admittedly, the time when uh, we close a worship service, sometimes that might not always be the most edifying uh, spiritual time for you as we're just going over, you know, things in life, announcements in the life of, of our church. Um, but lest you think that this morning is going to be anything like that, I need really to tell you something that took place in my seminary years. One of the the classes I took in seminary was an advanced Greek exegesis class on the epistle of Colossians. And it was a class that required some commitment even before you got to class. Uh, we were required to translate through the, the Greek text of Colossians. Before we get to class, we need to read through the Bible, read through Colossians 30 times before we even got to class. And so there's a pretty high level of commitment there before we got in. The first day of class, each of us were assigned a portion of Scripture Kind of who's showing up, who's committed to this class. Let's see, okay, you get this section, you get this section, you get this section. And uh, we're to study that and not necessarily write a paper, but more do research on all the, the lexical analysis that we could find and, and all the commentaries that we could search out. Uh, any word, defining every word, exactly what it means. We also looked at the syntactical observations that we had. You're combing through all these commentaries. Anytime they made a comment about this phrase or grammatically how it fit together, we wrote that down. And anytime there was a divergence of any kind of view... Um, you know, when he says you, who is he really meaning or, you know, things like that. Things really kind of pretty obscure when he talks about being in you. What exactly does that mean? Does it mean that he's all in us? Does it mean us individually? And kind of just really trying to figure out the difference between twiddly-dee and twiddly-dumb. And uh, the first half of the class, then we went through the Greek text of Colossians. And the second half of the class, we all presented our research. Each one took their, their passage of Scripture kind of right along. And so almost the last day of class, this man... Um, stood up to do his passage, and I remember his name. His name was Delano Robinson. And uh, his passage was Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. And he said, and I'm not quoting it verbatim, but this is just what he said. First thing getting up, he said, you know, when I first was assigned this passage, I was really kind of disappointed because uh, there's no great theological truth here. There's no great theological insert, uh, insight of what we're going to have here. It's just like a, a bunch of people and a bunch of announcements and a bunch of of, um, you know, just logistical details almost seemed. But he said, you know what, as I studied it, he said, there's a lot here. It really gave me an insight into the early church and what was going on in Colossae, what was going on in the life of Paul, what was going on uh, kind of uh, around the whole circumstance of Colossians. He said, you know, it was really edifying for my soul as well. 
And so this morning, as we read these closing announcements, realize that there are lessons for us to have here in this portion of Scripture. And uh, it's very interesting. You will be challenged by it, I'm sure. So let's get to our text. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas, his cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they've proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. In these verses, Paul mentions ten people. Ten people. Their names are Tychicus in verse 7, Onesimus in verse 9, Aristarchus in verse 10, Mark also in verse 10, Justice in verse 11, Epaphras in verse 12. Verse 14 contains both Luke and Demas. Verse 15, we see Nympha. And in verse 17, we see Archippus. Six of these people are with Paul, sending their greetings to the church in Colossae. Two of these people are with Paul and will be sent to be with the church in Colossae. Two of these people are in Colossae and Paul is sending his greetings to them. And all ten of them have lessons for us to learn. They have lessons to teach us. And so I've shaped my message this morning around these ten people. Each person has a point and a point of application for each of us as we go through this. But before we actually get in, I do want to take a moment to explain to you the vast difference there is between studying ancient history and studying modern history. Though both these disciplines have the same um, general area of study, they're both studying history. There is a vast difference in in how these two disciplines are really approached. And it all has to do with the amount of material available to us to study. In studying uh, ancient history, it's often quite possible that you can read every single original document that there is to read about a particular subject or person. Simply because it's so long ago, we have so little information about us, um, so little information about them, that really the task of the historian at that point comes to read everything you can and then just seek to try to fill in the gaps and make the, the most reasonable conclusions based upon the limited data available. 
But on the other side, modern history is a lot different than that. I mean, the data available in modern history is is vast. In fact, it might be even in some cases that when studying modern history, your lifetime couldn't read all of the original sources and data and information. I mean, I think about a lesson came through to that uh, this past week. It was New Year's holiday. My wife and I took advantage of our extra day off, and uh, we took a trip down to Springfield and um, just decided to kind of make it a Abraham Lincoln study tour for us is what we did. We visited Lincoln's tomb. We visited the old Capitol building where Lincoln spent much of his time, and we visited the old, the, the new Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum, which I think has been open for two years. And as we went through it, I was amazed at the amount of vast material that there is, you know, just about Lincoln. They took fragments of this and fragments of what he said. I mean, they have, they have books about that thick about everything that Abraham Lincoln said. They can go back and look into archives, into presidential documents. You can find firsthand witnesses of the Civil War and how they comment about Abraham Lincoln and all these things. Amazing. Um, even there was one book that spoke about the top hundred books that you can read about Abraham Lincoln. And one plaque even in the museum estimated that uh, the amount of writing about Abraham Lincoln is more than any other person in history with the possible exception of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that's exactly true, but just speaks about modern history. That was 150 years ago. Just a vast amount of material that's available to us. But this morning, we're coming to an ancient document. And so our approach isn't to survey everything that we know because I'm going to tell you everything we know. In fact, Paul, some of these people here, Paul's going to only mention them in this passage right here is all that we know about these people. Like this guy named Justice here in verse 11. All we know about Justice is what we learn about from verse 11. This woman, Nympha, in verse 15, all we know about her is just right here. And in fact, as we go through each of these people, there are only a handful of verses in all the Bible that tell us everything about these people. So we're going to have an opportunity as we look through these people to hear and piece together all of the different data that we have about different people, and we'll find that each of them have a specific characteristic of an application to teach us this morning. So let's look at first at uh, Tychicus. He's found here in verses uh, 7 and 8. And the lesson we learn from Tychicus is this. Be a faithful servant. Be a faithful servant. Paul writes, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is mentioned only five times in Scripture. We don't know anything about when he was saved or how he came to know the Apostle Paul. He comes on the scene in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, where we find him merely mentioned almost parenthetically as one of Paul's traveling companions. We don't know how much time he spent with Paul during these days. It may well be that he spent several years with Paul, but since Acts doesn't say hardly anything about him, Probably he was off ministering and back and forth with Paul. We don't, we don't really know how much time he spent with Paul. But he was dedicated to him and Paul's ministry and to the Lord. We find him being described here in verse 7 with three descriptions. He's called, first of all, a beloved brother. just means he's a fellow Christian. A fellow Christian who is loved by Paul and loved by others. He's also called here in verse 7, a, a faithful servant. This calls attention probably to his willingness to help and serve other people. In fact, in the Greek, this word is a diakonos. He's a faithful deacon. 
I don't think he was a deacon in the official sense of the term. I think he was a deacon in the unofficial sense of the term. He's just a faithful one who served other people. The third description of him is described as a fellow bondservant. That's probably talking about his, his vertical relationship. He, he, along with us, is a servant, a slave of the Lord God Almighty. Now, these sorts of descriptions show the love and the care and trust that Paul had in, in Tychicus. In fact, he's the one that Paul chose to be the mailman to get his letter to Colossae. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22, we read of Tychicus as well, being a mailman as well. It says there that you, he's writing to the Ephesians, that you may know about my circumstances, how am I doing? Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, that he may comfort your hearts. So we get a little bit of a hint here behind the historical situation between what was written in Colossae and in Ephesians as well, is that these letters were written out and then given to Tychicus, and he put them in his mail pouch and then took off to visit these two cities. Now, we also know of um, Tychicus in Philemon. We can also, as you read through that book, and also determine that he delivered that letter as well. And so here is Tychicus given the task of delivering Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And maybe if you look at chapter 4, verse 16, it says also there's this other letter. The letter written to the Laodiceans. So maybe there's a fourth letter. Some people, though, say that letter is the letter to the Ephesians. So maybe there are only three. But maybe Paul wrote other letters. So maybe there were more. Maybe he had his whole mailbag stuffed like Tom Duncan has every morning when he gets out to go on his work of delivering the mail. That's what was taking place. Now, in these, these days, delivering mail wasn't an easy job. You don't get up in the morning, go deliver the mail, and then come home at night. To deliver the mail meant that you would travel long distances to hand deliver that mail. So they didn't have any real organized postal system at that time. And if you had an important letter you wanted to deliver to somebody, you gave it to an important person who would take that trip. And Tychicus indeed was a faithful person. Travel in those days was difficult. It may have taken Tychicus several months to travel the thousand miles from Rome to Colossae. Several month trip. A thousand miles, it's hard. It's dangerous as well. It's been traveling in those days, susceptible to thieves much more than today. They want to take your money. If they know you're traveling for several months, you're going to have a lot of money on your hand, no visa card, you can just swipe, you've got to carry everything with you. It's hard. And um, people, there's um, danger there. So you want to take someone who's trusted, someone who's faithful, someone who's indeed going to get there. And that really is the great characteristic of Tychicus that I want to highlight for you today is that he is a faithful servant. He was ready and willing to do whatever it took to accomplish the ministry. If it meant delivering letters and being subjected to danger and difficulty, he's willing to do that. If it meant when he got there of communicating carefully and appropriately specific details about things, he was willing to do that. In fact, it says in verse 8, I sent him for this purpose that you may know about our circumstances. So in other words, he's going to get there and he's going to say, how's the Apostle Paul? And Tychicus is going to be one who's faithful and able to describe things in the appropriate way and to communicate what needs to be communicated and to listen to all of Paul's instructions about what to say to specific people and how to, how to address things. Tychicus was willing to do that. If it meant encouraging people of Colossae, as verse 8, he was willing to do this. In fact, he was even willing to pastor a church if that's what was needed in the life of the ministry. Because the two other references that we have of him in the Bible, 
we see him kind of overtaking a pastoral role. In Titus chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes to Titus, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. <clears throat> we get the sense here that with the arrival of Tychicus to Titus with the letter, it would possibly relieve Titus of his pastoral duties because Tychicus says, okay, Titus, I'm here. You know, I'll take over your church for a while here. Why don't you go and you see the Apostle Paul for these six months? A couple months travel, come see him, and then a couple months back. Tychicus was willing to do that. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, the last place we read of Tychicus, Paul writes, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. And the next verse, right where Timothy was, he says we, we read of how Paul wants Timothy now to come and see him now that Tychicus has arrived. And you really get this sense he was relieving pastors of their duty. That's Tychicus, faithful servant to do whatever it took to help others. And I simply ask you, are, are you like Tychicus? Are you ready and willing to do whatever it takes? Whatever you're called upon to do, church, ministry, whatever it takes to build up the body of Christ, are you willing to do that? It's what Tychicus did. He left his own pleasure. It would have been easier maybe to stay with Paul. But he took the travel because the letter had to be delivered. That's a lesson we learned from him. He's a faithful servant. Well, let's look to Onesimus. Here's Onesimus. Here's the letter. Here's the lesson we learned from Onesimus, verse nine. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Here's what we read. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole circum situation here. Onesimus is mentioned here and only one other place in the whole Bible. Colossians chapter four, verse eleven. Verse 9, rather, and Philemon, verse 10. <clears throat> in Colossians here, he's just kind of mentioned um, with only a few descriptions. He's given this faithful description. Onesimus is faithful, just like Tychicus. He's a beloved brother, just like Tychicus. He's going to just inform them about the situation like Tychicus. Now, the thing's unique, though, is that verse 9 says he's one of your number, meaning that he grew up in Colossae. He was, he was there in, in Colossae. Uh, we also, though, when we read Philemon, find out much more about this man, Onesimus. He was converted through the ministry of Paul. We find in Philemon. Somehow, we don't know how, but Paul was in jail. And it says in Philemon that Onesimus was begotten in his imprisonment. So Onesimus somehow was in Rome where Paul was and maybe was caught stealing. I mean, he was a runaway slave. Maybe he was caught stealing, thrown in prison. Um, maybe he was a prison guard. Maybe some of Onesimus' friends who were Christians trying to witness to him said, why don't you meet this Apostle Paul guy? And maybe they brought him to prison to come meet with him. We don't know. But we do know that somehow in prison, Onesimus contacted the Apostle Paul and he repented of his sin. He believed in Jesus Christ. He obtained eternal life and became a faithful follower of Jesus. And as things came out over the days that followed this, Paul began to learn of the background of Onesimus. He'd been a, from Colossae. You know, maybe you can imagine the conversation. Oh, you're from Colossae. And Paul's like, you know what? I know some people in Colossae. I, I know this, this, um, this, lots of people there. And you're from Colossae? Why, who do you know? And who are your friends? And, 
And Onesimus probably thinking about, oh, well, things are going to surface. And he talked about this man named Philemon. And Paul says, no, I know Philemon. He's become a believer too. And uh, in the providential circumstance of God, um, God allowed Paul to lead Philemon to the Lord and Onesimus to the Lord. But then things came out with Onesimus. Onesimus would have said at some point, somehow, I was a slave and I've run away. And I'm here in Rome trying to hide in this big city so as not to be found out. But at some point, Onesimus came to understand, you know, I've, I've embraced the Gospel of Christ. And I knew that this calls me to some things that I need to do. It calls me to honesty. It calls me to sincerity. It calls me to integrity. And it calls me to make right maybe some things that I messed up before. And he messed up running away from Philemon. And so he knew that he had to go back and talk to him. So with the help of Paul... A nice letter that was written to his friend Philemon. Onesimus did the right thing and he returned to Philemon as a runaway slave. Certainly wasn't an easy thing to do. I mean, you got to put yourself in the circumstance. This is a very difficult thing that Onesimus did. As a runaway slave, he is liable to be put to death. I mean, it would have been nothing for Philemon to say, oh, here comes a slave, off with his head, let's carry on with life. That would have been very easy. Roman law would, wouldn't even blink at that. Or, you know, perhaps Onismus is going to come back and maybe Philemon doesn't want to kill him. Maybe just says, 39 lashes. One lash less than the number of lashes often puts people to death. It was unclear how Philemon would treat him. And yet Onismus said, I'm willing to face the consequences of my sin. I'm willing to do the hard thing to make things right. Now, after we finish the book of Colossians, we're going to look at the book of Philemon and we'll be able to dig out more here. We're not going to linger here too long because we'll be able to do that in weeks to come. But I simply ask you this. Like Onesimus, are there things in your life that you need to get right? I mean, are there things you've said where you need to seek forgiveness in what was said? Uh, are there tests you've cheated on, students, that you need to go back and confess to your teacher you cheated on them? Are there things you've stolen you need to return? Is there pirated software on your computer you need to purchase? Is there a relationship that's damaged you need to seek to restore? Have you cheated a previous company that you need to make right? May Romans 12.18 guide us in this process, right? If it's possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. So what Onesimus was seeking to do. As far as it was possible with him, he was seeking to be at peace with Philemon. And he risked his life to be at peace with him. That's really the lesson that we need to learn. To do the right thing. It might be the hard thing. We're called to do the right things. What Onesimus did. Well, let's move on. Aristarchus. The lesson he teaches us here is clear. We should be willing to suffer. We should be willing to suffer. The testimony of Aristarchus comes in the first half of verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Hello! Is what Aristarchus said. He's mentioned five times in Scripture. And when you begin to piece his life together, it's very interesting. He was from Thessalonica, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 4. According to Colossians 4, verse 11, we know that he was Jewish. A Jewish man from Thessalonica. And the great thing about this is that we have Paul's recorded um, instance where he went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel. 
In Acts chapter 17, we, we saw Paul going into the synagogue and preaching to those worshiping there and explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and had to rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And, and Aristarchus was probably a Jew there in Thessalonica. He saw Paul come in and, and preach this message. We don't know if he believed instantly or, or soon after. I, I guess he did. And then one of the interesting things that Aristarchus saw when Paul came to Thessalonica is that he saw a time where the, the Jewish people rose up in incense against Paul and uh, even dragged away this man named Jason who was housing Paul, drug him out to the streets and said to the whole people, hey, this person here, he is housing Paul, is causing this city in an uproar and they're turning the whole world upside down and and it only took a pledge from Jason that allowed him to be safe. And Paul eventually then left Thessalonica. And Aristarchus from Thessalonica, a Jew in Thessalonica, would have seen some of the implications about what it meant that should he decide to follow Christ and follow Paul. And he knew full well that such a circumstance could happen to him someday. And yet he's willing to join Paul in his traveling and preaching. And he did. He followed him right from Acts 17. We see him later in Acts 19. And, and it's certainly, there's, there's no way that he kind of circumvented that. He followed Paul, right, from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to Corinth. And then he joined him as well in, in Ephesus. And when he was in Ephesus, very interesting, Paul did this typical deal, right? He went to the synagogue first, boldly proclaimed Christ, and always was his experience. There were some who were hardened to the message, but there were others who became convinced. And those who became convinced, Paul gathered to himself. And for three years, he was there teaching and instructing the whole counsel of God. He was teaching those who repented of their sin and, and turned from their idols and witchcraft to follow the living God. And there were a sufficient number of people there in Ephesus turning that Paul needed help. And one of the things he called upon Aristarchus to help them in terms of teach and disciple the new converts, the new believers at this time, uh, Aristarchus had been with Paul for maybe some two years <clears throat> in Corinth and was equipped and able to teach these new believers about Christ. And, and so great was the influence of these numbers of people turning to Jesus that there was a man named Demetrius, a silversmith in Ephesus. And this man made silver shrines of Artemis, the big temple in town. And he expressed his concern to the other craftsmen who, whose liveliness, livelihood depended upon their idol worshippers. See, because they made these idols and other people were coming to worship and then they buy these idols and see, then they get money to live. And he was concerned because Paul was teaching these idols really aren't gods. And if these aren't really gods, then people aren't going to come to the temple to worship in as big a numbers and we're not going to have enough money and we're not going to live as well. The whole economy depends on the fact that uh, Artemis is a true god. But Paul is teaching else. He's teaching otherwise. And so Demetrius stirred up this riot in the city. And according to Acts chapter 19, verse 29, this mob of people rushed into the theater where Gaius and Aristarchus were teaching the people. And they took these two guys and brought them out on the crowd. And they were in danger of being lynched, losing their lives in the process. But Aristarchus saw that same thing happen in Thessalonica. He experienced it in Ephesus and he was willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Standing alongside Paul and traveling with him was sufficient to bring these trials. He knew of the persecutions that would come. Having seen it in Thessalonica, he was willing to do it. He never backed down. Rather, listen, he remained faithful to Paul in his travels and his ministry. You know, here's a guy we don't read a lot about in Scripture. 
But when you track him through Acts, I mean, he, he spent probably two years with him in uh, the early trial, early travels of Paul, Acts 17, Acts 18. He was with him in Acts 19, Acts 20. We don't hear about him again until Acts chapter 27, verse 2. We find Paul in Caesarea, bound as a prisoner, heading off to Rome because he had appealed to Caesar. And we find out there in that verse that Aristarchus traveled with him in the boat to Rome. And so he's with them that whole journey, a thousand miles to get to Rome. And in Colossians 4, verse 10, we see that he was my fellow prisoner. He was right there with Paul in prison, suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, some have said that Aristarchus really wasn't a prisoner because Philemon, verse 24, the last place where he's mentioned in the Scripture I haven't mentioned, is he's not described there being a prisoner. But it may be that for space reasons, Paul didn't mention his circumstances. And, you know, it might be that Aristarchus really wasn't a prisoner, but at any rate, he was called here a, a fellow prisoner. Maybe, maybe he was with him, just serving with him, visiting him during the day, right? And being with him all through the night, giving him company, giving him food, running necessary errands, serving his every need. Because when you're in prison in those days, you needed other people alongside of you to help. I mean, they didn't feed you with three cots and a hot. Right? Three hots and a cot is what they say in prison, right? Three hot meals and a cot is what you get. Back in those days, you got like a stone wall. And if you wanted some bedding, you need to have someone to come help you serve you. If you wanted food, you need to have someone to come and help serve you. Maybe that was Aristarchus. Maybe he was a fellow prisoner as well. We don't exactly know. But here's what we do know. Rather than living a life of pleasure, he chose to deny himself, take up his cross, and to follow Christ. In so doing, he becomes a great example for us of one who suffered greatly. He's willing to suffer. Are you? Are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? You know, think about the message of Jesus Christ. He said, like I mentioned earlier, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's a high calling. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves your own life more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not give up all his own possessions cannot follow me. Christ said, in the world you'll have tribulation. Paul told the new believers in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, it's through many tribulations that you'll enter the kingdom of God. And Aristarchus knew full well what it meant to follow Christ. It meant tribulation, difficulty, distress, suffering. <laughs> but he was willing to do it. You know why he was willing to do it? Because he had a greater joy beyond. See, the life of following Christ isn't easy. It's hard. But it's worth it. Paul said the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. There's a greater glory and a greater pleasure beyond this life and suffering. And it's worth it to pursue and follow Christ. So are you willing to suffer? It's a lesson that Aristarchus teaches us. Let's move on to our fourth person here. And we're only going to get halfway through this text this morning. <clears throat> we're looking here now at Mark. At Mark. And of all these people, this is my favorite. <laughs> this is the most encouraging Mark is. The lesson he teaches us this morning is never give up. Never give up. We read about Mark in the second half of verse 10. He says, And also Barnabas' cousin Mark sends you his greetings. 
Then parenthetically, Paul writes here, about whom you received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now, Mark is mentioned nine times in Scripture. So we know quite a bit about Mark, and he's a very encouraging man. In Philemon verse 24, Mark simply mentioned as one who sends greetings to Philemon. So it's not a lot we learn there. Here in Colossians 4 verse 10, Mark is identified as a cousin of Barnabas. Probably important historically with some other things. We see Paul commending him to the church at Colossae, right? As, as someone to be welcomed, right? If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, that might not seem a big deal to you. I mean, if someone's with Paul and, and ministering to Paul, and Paul says, if he comes to you, welcome him, right? I mean, anybody who's a, a friend and a companion with Paul, wouldn't he be received? Well, not, not necessarily the case, because Mark had a damaged reputation because something took place in his life in the past. And to pick that up, you can go to Acts. In in Acts chapter 12, you don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, we find the first instance we hear something of Mark. He was at a prayer meeting. It's being held in his mother's house in Jerusalem. Remember, Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James had just been killed by Herod. The people liked it. So James captured Peter, put him in prison. He's ready to be killed, perhaps the next day. And so the people in Mark's mother's house were making fervent prayer for him. You remember that's the time when Peter came and kind of showed up at the door and just said, hello, I'm here. They couldn't believe it. But it was a fervent prayer meeting. And we can only presume that Mark was among their number because by the end of Acts chapter 12, Mark, along with Barnabas and Saul, returned to Antioch from Jerusalem. Now, when they returned to Antioch, beginning of Acts chapter 13, the leaders of the church were gathered together to seek the Lord's will in terms of their next steps, in terms of uh, what does God want us to do with this church and this message. And the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work I've called them to. So they fasted and prayed and sent them off. But they didn't go alone. Mark joined them on this trip. But the sad thing about what took place in Mark's life is that he deserted them. He was a deserter. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13, we read of how John, who's called Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, why he left is open for speculation, but the bottom line is it it wasn't good. It wasn't good. He probably left because something was too hard for him and turned and left. And in some ways, many people across the church at that time viewed him as a failure. He deserted the Apostle Paul when Paul needed him the most. A few months later then, after Paul and Barnabas returned, they were considering another trip to these churches they planted. They wanted to see how they were doing. And Barnabas said, hey, I want to take along my cousin, Mark. Paul said, no, listen, he deserted us before, and I don't think he should come with us this time. And it says in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, that a sharp disagreement arose between them. Barnabas wanted to take John, who's called Mark, along with them. But Paul kept insisting they should not take along him who deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them in the work. Paul wasn't speaking too highly of Mark at this time. And the rift between Paul and Barnabas was, was so great that Barnabas said, and I paraphrase here, okay, tough, Paul, I'm taking him anyway. He took, Barnabas took Mark, and they, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 39, they sailed away. We never hear anything of Barnabas ever again. And it's almost the sense you get there was they sailed away in defiance against what the council of the church had to say. Because, you read in the next verse, 
how Paul said, okay, I got to go with someone. I chose Silas. And the church commended them and sent them out. Whereas Barnabas just sailed away with, with Mark. And these events certainly had a, had a damaging effect upon Mark and his reputation. <clears throat> when people heard Mark's name, they thought deserter. Right? And that happens sometimes. Sometimes people in life have such a, a bad thing that they did that forever you think about their life and that's what you think about. Like, for instance, <clears throat> let's try this. Name association. I say a, a name and you say one word. See if we can get together. Benedict Arnold. Traitor. Everyone knows that, right? His name is so linked. And the good things that he did are long forgotten. Do you know that Benedict Arnold was a hero in the Revolutionary War? <clears throat> In fact, on the battlefield at Saratoga, there's a monument that stands as a memorial to his bravery and fighting time. In that battle, he injured his leg such that he would never be able to fight again. And here reads his memorial, in memory of the most brilliant soldier, <laughs> in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army, who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen, the decisive battle of the American Revolution, and for himself the rank of Major General. What's unique, though, about that um, memorial stone is that it never mentions his name. It doesn't say Benedict Arnold, this great military receiving the title of Major General. The most courageous one, right? The most brilliant soldier doesn't have his name doesn't have his name because he defected to the British Army several years later. And his defection clouds his reputation of every good thing he did. Same is true of Judas. I mean, all we can remember about Judas is his failings. In fact, oftentimes, whenever they write about Jewish, Judas in the Scriptures, it's always Judas who crucified, who betrayed Jesus. It's always how it's said. We forget the beneficial things he did as a disciple of Jesus because he did. He went out and preached and taught about the kingdom of God, though falsely not believing it. We all forget that he was given authority to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness along with the other disciples. But you know what? All that, it's all forgotten because of what he did. He betrayed the Lord. And so here stood Mark. So when he failed in the ministry, his fame and failure went far beyond But listen, you can take heart, though, in Mark this morning. Because he overcame his previous failures. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, we hear the amazing words, the instruction to Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Think about that. Timothy, pick up Mark, right? Go out of your way, pick up Mark and bring him to me when you come to me because he is useful to me for service. This tells me this, that Mark never gave up. He never gave up. Yes, he'd failed. Yes, he deserted Paul. Yes, Paul refused to trust him on the next missionary journey. Listen, but over time, Mark was able to change his reputation. His faithfulness in ministry was known and experienced by the Apostle Paul. He actually became useful to Paul. And Paul wanted to see Mark before he died. There's a context of Second Timothy. It's his, his death letter almost. I'm about to die. There's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which I'm loving and longing for. But Timothy, come and see me soon. Bring my cloak. Bring my parchments. Bring Mark. 
And you know what? Even I think you get the hint of that here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 11. There's a, a subtle encouragement to be found in Colossians as to his reputation and his usefulness. Look what it says there again. It says, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. I think that these words were included so as to help Mark to overcome his ill reputation among the churches. Rather than blackballing Mark and saying he's done, Paul was seeking to commend him to the churches. If he comes to you, welcome him. So I encourage you, church family, never give up. Never give up. If you fail in ministry, if you fail by falling into some great sin in the light of others, don't give up and don't lose hope. Rather, press on and let the Lord vindicate you in His own dear time. Prove yourself to be a faithful minister, follower of Christ. And God will vindicate you in some time, like He did Mark. Oh, it might be slow. It might take some time. But here's the beginning of it. And definitely when Paul said in 2 Timothy that he's useful to me, Mark was fully vindicated. Well, how do you do this? Maybe there's some blight on your character. Maybe there's something that you did that's like, oh man, that's too big for me. How how do you do this? Uh, My counsel is this. Spend time with Peter. Spend time with Peter. The only other verse that I haven't mentioned yet in which Mark is mentioned in the Bible is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, where Peter calls Mark, my son. He calls him my son. I think Peter took Mark under his wings to help him and encourage him. They'd already had an established relationship with one another before Mark's failures, right? Because Mark was probably there when Peter came out of the prison, right? They're praying in Mark's mother's house. You know, there was an established relationship there. But I think as Peter heard of Mark's failures, I think Peter could have really thought about, you know what, I failed the Lord too. And yet, he's found me faithful and put me into service like the Apostle Paul. How easy would it have been for Peter to come alongside and say, you know what, I'm, I've been comforted by the Lord, Second Corinthians chapter 1. I'm seeking to comfort you now, Mark, with the same comfort that I've been comforted by. Let me tell you about a night Jesus told me that um, we all would fall away from Him. And I said, may it never be, Lord. I will even die with You. And you know what I did, Mark? I fell away. I denied Jesus three times. And you know, on top of that, Mark, he still his hands around and still, still caressing him, still telling him, he said, you know what, I, uh, after Jesus died, I went off fishing. He said I'd be a disciple of men. I wanted to fish for fish. And it was there on that Sea of Galilee. I remember that, that nice beach where Jesus came and, and He restored me. He asked me several times if I loved Him. and He just told me to feed His sheep and to shepherd His sheep. He says, Mark, I know, I know the discouragements you've had. I know how you failed Mark and Barnab- Paul and Barnabas. I know how you left and, and went away. And... Um, I know certainly how it feels to be on the outside. But listen, press on and carry on and be faithful to the Lord. God was gracious to restore me. Never give up hope. Realize the Lord is a forgiving God who embraces all who come to Him by faith. So be encouraged, Paul. And I think that Peter probably helped Mark quite a lot in being restored into this circumstance. And I say that because Peter is often associated with the second gospel. The Gospels called Mark, which Mark actually wrote. And probably he and Peter spent a lot of time, Mark getting a lot of details from Peter, writing the second Gospel account that bears his name. 
And I just say to you, listen, never never give up. Though you fail Him, continue to trust the Lord. Continue to serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Rest upon His grace to trust to carry you through. That's Mark. Well, we've seen the lessons today to be a faithful servant like Tychicus, to do the right thing like Onesimus, to be willing to suffer like Aristarchus, never give up like Mark, and finally this morning, trust the Messiah Trust the Messiah like justice. Next week, we're going to look at Epaphras, Luke, Demas, Nympha, and Archippus. But we're going to end right here. We're going to land right here on justice. Look at verse 11. It says this, And also Jesus, who is called justice, sends you his greetings. These, referring to Aristarchus, Mark, and justice, are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they've proved to be an encouragement to me. Well, that one verse is everything we have in our Bible about justice. We know nothing about this man other than what we can decipher here from verse 11. So welcome to ancient history. We find out his name was Jesus, but he went by the name Justice. Both of these were real common names of the day. There's nothing real special about either of these. Um, Everything else we know about Justice is true of Aristarchus and Mark as well. But you put all these things together and there is a lesson for us. right? You see this, justice is called a, a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. We find out also in verse 11 that he was of the circumcision. That means he was a Jewish man. We find also that he is an encouragement to Paul. Particularly, I think it means because he was a Jew and come to faith in Christ the Messiah, he was an encouragement because Paul you know, quite frankly, didn't see a lot of Jewish believers come to faith. And and I think you can detect even here a a little tone of frustration on the behalf of Paul because there weren't many from the tribes of Israel who were working with Paul on behalf of Christ and his imprisonment. He said, only these three, only Aristarchus, only Mark, only Justice, these three are the only ones. It's almost condemning everybody else, every other Jew there in Rome. Because none of them have. And what's even more interesting is this, is that um, you see that Aristarchus wasn't from Rome. He was from Thessalonica, brought into Rome to minister to him in his imprisonment. Mark, his mother's house was in Jerusalem. He was a Jew from Jerusalem. And he's, so Justice might be the only Roman who was a Jew who came to faith. And we don't even know that. So upon the Jews in Rome, it was a barren, it was a barren place. It's not because they didn't have the opportunity to believe in Christ. I mean, what Paul did in Rome was exactly what he did everywhere else. They went into a city, preached to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, first thing is he got there, he was sent from Caesarea to Rome and he proceeded, he got there before the charges got there. And so Paul shows up and, and these Roman, these, these, uh, soldiers say, yep, Paul's a prisoner. is to be charged by Caesar. And Caesar is like, I don't even have a charge. I don't even know what this is. And even the Jews said, we've heard a little bit about this Paul, but we don't know much about him. And so they established a day. Okay, why don't you come and you come to me and uh, I'll talk to you about what I've been accused about. I'll talk to you about the scriptures. I'll talk to you about my beliefs. And it's going to be a basically a tribunal to see what it is that Paul believes. And, and what's good about these Jews here in, in Rome is they didn't have preconceived notions so much about everything bad about Paul. They just kind of heard something about Paul and they were hearing it for the first time from his lips. 
And so it says in Acts chapter 28, verse 23, that a large number came to his lodging there and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Jews coming, getting persuaded by the Apostle Paul from the Old Testament Scriptures about Jesus and Paul's trying to persuade them, trying to convince them, trying to show them how Jesus is indeed the Messiah. You can just think about, right, passages of the Old Testament he might have gone to that would prove Jesus. I think a lot of it would be like Isaiah chapter 53. You go to Isaiah 53 and say, look, now, this is the suffering servant. And the, the suffering servant, right? This is the Messiah, right? And before he would come to rule and reign, he's got to suffer first, right? And even in that passage, it speaks about he must die for our sins, right? In our place, we've gone astray like sheep, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And the, the crucifixion would have really come out of that. And so he must have died. The Messiah must have died. I mean, Acts, Psalm chapter 16 prophesied of a, of a resurrection of Christ. When Christ would raise from the dead, right? I didn't allow my Holy One to undergo decay. David decayed, but the Messiah wouldn't decay because he'd be raised from the dead. Paul maybe go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and say, remember about Messiah. It says that the Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and will mourn for him. And, and they'll say, oh, that's it. See, Jesus, you're going to pierce your Messiah. And on top of that, then, those are just passages that would have talked about His crucifixion. You're talking about, okay, now where's, where's the Messiah from? Where's from Nazareth? Well, that's where Jesus was from. Whose son is, is Jesus? The son of David, right? That has to be the Messiah. The Messiah has to be God in the flesh, according to Psalm 110. Others didn't believe. And then there became an argument amongst each other. And, and finally then they left. And they just said, no, this isn't right. Kind of those who didn't believe persuaded those who did believe and they left. But before they left, Paul had one parting word to them. It was a word of rebuke. Listen to what he said. The very end of Acts. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was telling them. They were listening. They were hearing. They were seeing. But they wouldn't believe. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return. And I would heal them. Then they went their way, hearing these words of condemnation from the lips of Isaiah. As Paul's here sitting in the Roman prison, these three men are surrounding him from the Jewish race who'd come to embrace the Messiah. That's really the point of application for us this morning. It has to do with our faith. They trusted their Messiah, even when many people didn't. They stood alone. And so likewise, justice calls us to trust the Messiah. By the Messiah, I mean Jesus Christ, right? The one of Nazareth went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. He was the one hated by the religious leaders because he pointed out their sin, right? He was the light coming into the world, but the darkness hated the light because he exposed their deeds and their deeds were evil. They crucified the Lord of glory, though they didn't know what it is that they were doing. But you know what? They were carrying out the plan that God had decreed long before time began. 
Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Gentiles and all the people of Israel simply carried out what the hand of the Lord <clears throat> and His purpose predestined to occur. Acts 4, 27-28, the Lamb of God became our sacrifice in exact accordance with the Scriptures and that Jesus is the Lamb of God and that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we should serve today. We should believe in Him. We should trust in Him just as justice did. Well, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, this really is a perfect point for us to really segue into that because here we're talking about justice and justice being a Jew, right? Understood the plan of God in the kingdom of heaven. He understood the, the culmination of the days and believed that Jesus was His only hope. That he had no other hope but Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could forgive sin. He's the only one who can take us into glory. And we today, for the vast majority of us, Gentiles, we sit here today professing a belief in Christ. And what we do every month or so, we, um, we pass some bread and we pass a cup and we take that. And we take the bread and we eat of it. And we take the cup and we drink of it. It's because something we want to do. No, it's something because Jesus told us to do that. And the night when he betrayed, he had a Passover Seder meal there and he took the bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. You all eat this now in remembrance of me. And the cup also he took and he said, you all eat this and drink this in remembrance of me. Right? Remembering his body upon the cross. Remembering his blood that was spilt for our sins so that we wouldn't have to spin up, spill our own blood as well. That's really what we do. And so if you are a believer in Christ today, if you are trusting him, if your heart today is following him like these people here in Colossians have been doing, if your heart is that of a servant of Tychicus, of Onesimus, one who pledges, wants to do right, of, of Aristarchus, willing to suffer for him, of, of Mark, one who's not giving up but pressing on, and one who's like justice, believing in the Messiah. If that's you this morning, then I encourage you to partake of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> but if there are things, the hardness of your heart, you say, you know what, I've given up on this Christianity. Don't take it. Or if you can say with Tychicus, you know what, I'm, I'm not a servant. I'm selfish. I'm into my own things. You know, repent of that and realize you're called to be a servant of the Lord. Maybe you're refusing to do that hard thing that God's calling you to do. Maybe you're not willing to suffer. Maybe when pressure comes on at school, you're going with the crowd rather than standing with Aristarchus and willing to be made a mockery of. Maybe you're just failing to believe. If, if, if that's kind of your circumstance, don't, don't partake of this supper. Don't celebrate it with it. Just let the cup... Let the bread pass by. There's nothing wrong with that. What it says, you're saying, you know, I, I'm going to state today that I'm not, I'm not believing trust in Christ. And I'd encourage you to repent even right now before the bread passes and just say, God, I, I am sinning. I am. I need to believe and trust in you. And I do. And I, I take that cup. Because what we do is we take the bread and we take the cup. It's merely a proclamation of our belief and our faith and trust in Christ until He comes again. That's all it is. And so it's an opportunity for us to do that together in accordance with the commands of God. So I want to pray and then Jake's going to lead us in a song and then we're going to pass out the, the bread and the cup and I'll come up here and we'll, we'll take of that together. But let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I would pray that these men today that we looked at would become examples to us 
of how it is that we ought to live our Christian lives. Not that in any way these things merit any standing before you in, in any way whatsoever. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. Plus, none of our works is how we're saved. And yet, a, a life that follows Christ is a life that's consistent with belief in Christ. And a life that believes in Christ indeed forsakes all and follows you. And so I pray you'd strengthen us to be the, the faithful servant like Tychicus. I pray you'd strengthen us to do the right thing like Onesimus did. I pray that you would ingrain within us a heart that's willing to suffer like Aristarchus did and a heart that perseveres until the end. I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to believe and trust in the Messiah, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is a glorious faith. God, I pray you give us this morning great joy and great admiration for Him who died so long ago to bring us to You. So help us this morning, God, I pray as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. May it be a joy to our hearts. May You strengthen our hearts and encourage us in these ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.